You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and... Uh, I teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep. And you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, spirit is, is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby and that baby's, you know, two months old or five months old or 10 months old and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body. And my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings. Or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires, direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling 
you know, body, mind, or spirit, then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico. And we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that I I really like to draw a distinction on when I work with companies, and Stephen Covey taught this uh, very well, is there's a certain time that we need to compete, and there's a certain time that we need to cooperate. And competition works incredibly well, but you'll notice that a lot of, and it, for a lot of people, some of this aggressiveness and aggression that we see in our business and our workplace might be coming from the fact that you've set up systems that are competitive instead of cooperative. So if I work in a company and I'm a salesperson and we have a list, uh, you know, where we compete every week to be the number one salesperson, then what? it's great because you'll get the benefits of competition, right? So I'll work hard. I'll keep trying to you know, increase my abilities and my skills. That's, that's actually pretty smart, right? Because I want all my sales guys kind of competing against each other, we think. The downside to that competition, however, 
is that when I figure out the number one easiest way to get leads and close deals, and it's my competitive advantage, I'm not telling anybody about it, right? I'm not going to tell you because it's mine. And so I keep some of the great secrets that could lift my entire team up, and I keep the secret because you've fostered as the sales manager a competitive environment. So we sometimes we're afraid that if we're too cooperative, we we you know we'll be able to brainstorm better. We'll be able to share best practices if we're cooperating. So the dilemma becomes: How do I create an environment where I balance my competition of my people and my cooperation with my people to create this synergy? Like think about it. In learning, is the best way to learn to create a competitive environment. So if we're grading on the curve and I can only give so many A's, I guess that's the best way to create learning? I doubt it. Yet we're all at school competing for grades. We're all at work competing. And there are certain times I'm not questioning that we should compete. If I need to make a team, I want my team competing against each other to make the, to make the to decide who's going to be first string, right, on the team. So for a certain percentage of my camp with my team, I'm going to have them compete for their roles and their positions. But there comes a point where I need to then make them the team. And once I decide to make them the team, if competition every single day for your role or your position is there, then I'm going to actually impact our ability to cooperate together. I, at some point, need not individual goals per se. I need group goals, collective goals. So think about your organization. And if you're an organizational leader, even think about your family. A lot of parents try to motivate their kids by competing. I used to do it all the time. First one to bed gets a sucker. (laughs) And my kids would beat each other up to get to bed. Okay, you win the sucker. But they're crying and they're hyperventilating. (laughs) She hit me. Okay, well, we got them to bed but they hate each other. There's a certain time to compete and a certain time to cooperate. And I'm afraid that many times the bullies unintentionally don't distinguish between the two. And for example, you can see with in political runoffs, we could compete so hard against each other that we can't cooperate at the end of the, at the end of the primaries. You could compete so hard that your candidate is useless in a general election. And that was, you know, the old Reagan belief that he'll never say anything negative about a fellow Republican or whatever. It's not his role. He will only fight the Democrat or whatever. And there's times, if you notice, in our culture, in our uh, country, that our politicians are always in competition mode and they can't cooperate anymore. And yet policymaking and good uh, you know, good democracy, healthy democracy demands a time to cooperate as well. So think about that in your life and in your world. Are you an effective manager of when to cooperate and when to compete? And a lot of times I think the bullies are people that just think competition's the number one rule. And it's just not the case. It's not the case. And whichever rule you choose, if you go with competition or cooperation, there's a consequence. There's a there's a payback. And um, you got to be careful of it, right? 
So think about it in your world. And don't just sit there and think everybody else is the bully. Is there any chance that people at your workplace consider you to be a bully? Just because of the jokes you make, what you say, are you a bully? Anyway, take it in. Figure it out. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West. You remember the Dust Bowl, you know, in the Midwest? Um, the Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I, I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope. And he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act. And I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you, you can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because, or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope, right? The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, We've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, And with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. (laughs) And this demands management, and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some, some, some choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. 
and steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the you have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words: steward, agent, options, right, pathways, and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West will make it through the drought. Let's just let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the coach's corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend show next. You know, more people are working from home now than ever before, but uh, some companies have been better at providing flex time and working opportunities than others. And they may not be the ones that you typically associate with, you know, the pajama-clad, home-brewed workplace. Bree Reynolds, the Senior Career Specialist at Flex Jobs, is uh, joining us by phone right now. And uh, she's talking to us today about the fields that are providing more and more flexibility. So if you're going to go out, maybe get uh, retooled, get new information, new education, there's certain fields that are much more open to Flex Jobs, as there are certain companies and organizations that are more willing to do it. Bree Reynolds, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Talk to us. I mean, flex jobs, it used to be something that companies didn't want. They, you know, they wanted everybody in the room. They wanted to see their pretty faces. But it sounds like, according to your article, more and more organizations are are open to it. Yeah, we're really seeing a lot of growth in terms of the companies that are offering flexible work. It seems like uh, with technology becoming much more accessible and people just being interested in flexible work, companies are really picking this up and making it a part of their work-life balance programs and offering it to their employees. Are they doing it because it does it actually produce results for them or are they doing it to placate, to, to make everyone happy and make sure that they still have a workforce? <laughs> I think it might be a little bit of both at this point, although more companies are getting a bit savvier about how they track these programs so they can actually figure out what the return on investment is for them as a company. Um, And so I think at first it maybe was seen as a little bit of a perk, maybe five or 10 years ago, you know, you let people work from home or you give them a little bit of uh, schedule flexibility. But it seems like more companies today are actually tracking what that does for them in terms of productivity, in terms of employee retention, and all those sorts of things, reduce stress levels. And um, and they're actually saying, oh, this does have an impact on how we reach our business objectives and how we how the bottom line looks at our company. Um, so it's a good it's a good trend to see that they're actually starting to track that sort of thing because it is a benefit for both the people who get to work flexibly and the companies that are offering it. Right. In fact, uh, a 2015 Gallup poll that you cited in your article found that 37% of American employees had flexible working options compared with only 9% in 95. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a really big increase. And that's specifically for people who are working from home, which is a really um, sort of specific type of flexible work where um, you're able to do your job at home. So uh, there are some folks who have really, you know, at-home compatible jobs where they're working mostly on a laptop and a phone, um, and they're able to do that on a regular basis, like that the Gallup survey showed. Um, and then we also have types of flexibility like flexible scheduling and things like that that have grown too. So 
I think with the technology and uh, the millennials coming up and really just seeing flexible work as a regular way of working and not really much different than um, how they would want to work in general, we, it seems we, to be kind of reaching a swelling point. Yeah. We talk a lot about on the show um, engagement and employee engagement and how some Gallup numbers, I believe it was Gallup, talked about um, 70% of the workforce is disengaged at work. And I think, wow. But maybe some of that is the need for flex schedules, flex time, and, and just opportunities. So many live a life where they can do stuff on their phone at the park um, or on their <laughs> laptop or their iPad somewhere else that rejuvenates them, makes them feel healthier. It, it just seems like this isn't going away. Do you predict that in the future, will will it reach levels of 80 percent eventually? How high can this go? Are, are, you know, or I guess there just are some jobs that you can't have too much flex time. Yeah, there are still, yeah, some positions that you can't really do too much flexibly with. They're pretty set in stone. But we have seen a lot of predictions that say around 50% of the U.S. workforce have jobs that could be done from home. Um, so specifically when you're talking about working from home, about 50% of people have jobs that, that could be done in the office, which is a big chunk. I mean, right now, as Gallup said, about 37% are working from home, at least occasionally. Um, and so there is room for growth there. Uh, Dell is an interesting example because they have this initiative where they want 20, by 2020, they want about 50% of their workforce to be working from home. So companies are actually sort of setting that goal for themselves as well. So hmm. yeah, it's definitely possible for a lot of the public. What uh, what do you see the benefits are, you know, as far as working kind of in this flex way or working from home versus the traditional way everybody comes, parks in the same parking lot, eats in the same mm -hmm. cafeteria. What are the benefits? There are a lot of benefits. And again, I'll, you know, it's not for everyone, for sure. For right. my um, experience, I've worked from home since 2010, and I love it. Um, wouldn't ever really consider going back to an office if I could avoid it. My husband, on the other hand, works from home uh, and can't stand it. He wants to get back in the office. He wants to be around people. Um, but for the people who enjoy it, the benefits are really that um, lower stress levels. You're not commuting every day. You don't have that morning rush where you're trying to get ready for work and get your kids ready for school and get out the door. Uh, you can really take your time and, and just kind of enjoy your mornings a little bit more. Um, you also have a lot of control over your workspace, so it's a lot more comfortable. You're able to choose your, your space where you're sitting, uh, where your desk, all that sort of stuff goes. Um, and then also, uh, in terms of productivity, people who work from home are actually really impressed with how much more productive they can be. Hmm. So it's not just the employer saying, oh, this is great, we get more productive workers, but it's people themselves who say they're able to focus more. They they have fewer distractions from their coworkers. They're um, attending fewer meetings that don't really matter. You know, they're yeah. really getting to the core of their work. They don't have that distraction going on. Well, I, I think of it, too, that as I've worked with some of my employees that um, – work from home, I have to really over-communicate. I communicate in a way better with them than the mm -hmm. ones that are near me because yeah. I have to just to make sure that we know what we're doing and that we know how to measure it. So I wonder if it doesn't force everybody to, to play a better game, a tighter game. I think that's a really good way of putting it, yeah. it's The communication piece is so key when you work from home. And I think that's one of the areas where when you see successful programs, they're all really good at communicating with each other. So like you said, you almost have to over-communicate. You have to really make sure everybody's on the same page, that everybody is tuned in to what they're supposed to be working on and how that fits into how everyone else is working. Uh, whereas in an office, you might have a little bit less of that because 
you see people working, you sort of make assumptions that they're working on the thing that you think they might be working on. And um, so there's that, that, you know, quieter communication going on. Whereas when you work from home, it's really proactive. You are talking to people all the time. It's actually a lot less isolating than people think because you do have to communicate so yeah. often. We, we also talk a lot about introverts, extroverts. I could see, too, that this could be a wonderful thing for an introvert that might do better just in their own setting, in their own place. And maybe the extrovert's the one that can hardly wait to get out and socialize. And is it is it does it tend to break in certain you know types of people? I mean, I would assume like some people may not do as well at home just because they don't focus either. So I think you know it could go. Yeah. It depends on the person, right? Yeah, I think it's more dependent on the person and those sorts of skills, like your ability to focus yourself um, to to handle being alone. Um, so that introversion, extroversion thing comes into a little bit, but more so it's, it's the really being able to focus, being able to manage yourself and your time um, and stay on task. Those are sort of the really big ones. And that communication piece, you have to be really comfortable communicating not only verbally, but also, um, you know, in writing uh, on chat and instant messenger programs. And when you're doing web conferencing and all those different things. So, um, you know, I think actually extroversion can sort of help you be, really good at working from home because you're more likely to be reaching out to people and, right. and be a kind of open communicator. Whereas the introverts like myself, we tend to be a little bit more um, closed in that way and mm-hmm. less open to communication. So yeah, as long, I think as long as you know your strengths and your weaknesses, you can make it work for you if you're really trying. Uh, a startling statistic that we found on your website um, uh, was at flex jobs was that only seven percent of workers say they're most productive in the office. Yes, yes, people That's really startling. prefer to get out of the office when they have to work on important tasks. Yeah, we did a survey of uh, over thirty one hundred people, and and only seven percent said the office is where they really prefer to be to get their most important work done. Um, and you know, from that group, people preferred instead to be outside of the office, either at home or at a coffee shop or a co-working space, just somewhere that has a different vibe that is less distracting than the office when they really need to focus and get work done. Hmm. Um, yeah, only 7%. That's kind of shocking. So when we, th- we think of flexible flexibility and flex time, I mean, where some of the times we're talking about the time, but a lot of times it sounds like we're talking about the location. Does, does flexibility factor into any other part of the job other than just time and location? It does. Absolutely. About 8% of the people in the survey said they actually did prefer the office, but only after hours. They liked those off hour times, you know, outside the nine to five when there's fewer people at their office Hmm. to distract them, but they do like that office environment. So when flexibility, when we talk about that term, we're really talking about working from home as part of it, but also flexible scheduling. So that sort of being able to shift your hours, um, either working alternative schedules or maybe you're just shifting your hours to avoid commuting time. So you're maybe working earlier and leaving earlier so that you're not spending extra time sitting in traffic to and from work. Um, and then also part-time schedules. That seems to be something people are interested in for professional part-time jobs where, you know, you might have a, a high-powered position. It's a career-oriented position, but it's just part-time hours mm. instead of full-time. Um, and then freelance uh, is another big piece of that. I think that's something we hear about a lot more often nowadays is, is freelance and contract opportunities. I guess that this is, in a way, a nightmare for the HR department. 
Because I mean, I mean, it's not. It's good. You, you've got to meet them where they are. But boy, trying to figure out flex time, flex pay. It used to be they, you know, everybody's going to be here. Forty hours is the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you must be here so often. We'll do consistent reviews. Nobody's. We don't have part timers. You're a full timer, or you're only part timers. I mean, it's the the flex is really now. I guess starting to show that employees have different needs. Yeah, yeah, different needs for sure. And for HR, it is, you know, it can be more to organize, a little bit more to handle. Um, And on the flip side of that, they're hopefully, you know, getting out of this more happier workers. Uh, They're easier to retain. They're not losing people quite as much. That was actually one of the big things we found in the survey also is, I think it was something like 80% of people said they would be more loyal um, to their employers if they had flexible work options. So, mm. um, you know, from HR's perspective, it is more complicated potentially to organize all of this and just keep track of everything. But once you have a system in place, you really start to see those benefits. Come oh, in. yeah. And it, I, I love it. It just shows we're humans, right? We're not just a bunch of gerbils. Um, powerful stuff. We'll take a break. More with Bree Reynolds and uh, this discussion about flexibility in your career. We'll come back, talk about which employers are, are really good at it and what areas of specialty have the best opportunity of flex time. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you earn more right here on the Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever wanted more flexibility in your life, in your work schedule? Well, you, you may just have that opportunity. According to our guest today, Bree Reynolds, uh, flexibility in your schedule and in your lives, it's a real thing. You There's there's organizations that uh, that do a great job, and Bree's, Bree's company, FlexJobs.com, is um, is one of the leaders in helping us understand more about that. Bree, thank you again so much for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, Bree, you wrote that article, The Fastest Growing Job Categories for Flexible Work May Surprise You. What are the categories um, that that really give an advantage if somebody wants flex time? Yeah, so these are the categories where we're seeing the most growth in terms of flexible job openings. You know, where where are the jobs is <laughs> kind yeah. of a big thing with this. And so we're seeing a lot of growth in government and politics, uh, engineering, project management, communications, and travel and hospitality. Those seem to be the with with a lot of growth over the last year. That was the time frame that we looked at. Wow. And and um government doesn't that doesn't make sense. You mean the government? <laughs> it is a little counterintuitive, yeah, that they're being um, really proactive in this area. I think it was back in 2010, uh, the Federal Telework Act went into effect and actually encourages all of the main, I think it's the 10 main government agencies, to allow employees to telecommute whenever possible, which is working from home. Um, and so they've really taken that up. And, and a lot of the really big government agencies like U.S. Department of Agriculture, Interior, Transportation, those are the ones that are really offering a lot of telecommuting opportunities. Um, and they're also the ones that are tracking it best. So, yeah, the government is actually kind of leading the, the, the charge when it comes to this one. Wow. I mean, it's rare. It seems like that the government yeah. 
just jumps on it and takes the lead. But in a way, this has got to be it's it's got to be financially uh, helpful too because you don't need to have as many have, have as much property, have as many offices. I mean, a lot of things. Exactly. It could be very beneficial. Exactly. Yeah, the reports are coming out now where these government agencies have been tracking this. They've been able to reduce their real estate, which means they're saving um, tens of millions of dollars annually in their real estate costs, in maintaining those offices, even in the heating and cooling and buying office supplies and all that sort of stuff, because they're allowing their uh, workers to work from home instead. So it's, it's a really big cost savings for them. And then, of course, you also have the continuity aspect of it, where if there is some sort of weather-related event where, you know, in Washington, D.C., if it snows a couple inches in the winter, that city shuts down for days. Oh, yeah. Um, And so having everybody be able to still function when they're at home and work just as if they were in the office, it really helps to to keep things moving. Um, And that's, you know, for private businesses, too. So, yeah, they're doing a good job. Well, and in another way, it puts people uh, in the real world. Right. So instead of making a decision in your office uh, in this sterile environment, you're making it (laughs) some of these decisions you're thinking about on the playground as you're picking up your kids from school. Exactly. Yeah, really. It like you were saying before, it humanizes the way we work. We're not gerbils. (laughs) We are out there in the real world and and using our lives to inform the work that we're doing. What are so the federal government, I guess, is 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 taking lead there. What are some other organizations that we may have heard of that are doing a really good job in flex time? Yeah, when it comes to these growth areas, we see in engineering companies like Dell um, and Deloitte are two of the biggest ones that are are posting those types of jobs. Uh, In project management, we see Xerox and United Health Group, um, and those are really sort of leading the way when it it comes to flexibility. And when we looked at this, it was all types of flexibility. So anything from, you know, remote jobs to freelance to part-time, the flexible schedules, all of those things combined. Um, in the communications arena, we saw companies like IBM and also Yelp, that wonderful mm-hmm. review site that I use all the time to find restaurants and yeah. go get my dinner from. And uh, and then travel and hospitality, uh, we saw companies like Hilton Worldwide and then G6 Hospitality and BC Travel were two of the other ones. It's It's a different world, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it's like these companies just show that there's such a huge variety of companies that are taking advantage of flexible work options and offering this to their potential employees. Um, they're they're using it to attract people. They're using it to retain people. It's just got a lot of benefits for companies. And you think of companies like Xerox and IBM. I mean, these were the companies that actually institutionalized the work environment. <laughs> these are the ones that yeah. nine to five America. And now they're the ones that are leading in this flex jobs world. How cool is that? I guess that's innovation. That's how you stay alive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're really seeing it as sort of a necessity. Uh, It's kind of doing a little bit of a 180. And I mean, the way that I work today, it wasn't even an option for me when I was in college, you know, 15 years ago. Right. Uh, So it's it's an interesting, (laughs) it's an interesting time. And for a lot of people, a lot of people are just now realizing, hey, I could work this way. You know, let me try to find jobs that allow me to do this. Um, so, yeah, we're reaching a really nice kind of groundswell of flexibility. This this kind of freelance mentality, too, where a lot of people are um, they're, they're freelancing. They might they might have two part time jobs or they might just be 1099 and consulting with three or four companies. It seems like that's pretty healthy, too, because it. Um, it, it, it allows you to stir the pot, get more ideas from people if you can make that work. But it's, it also takes a different type of human 
that's that's maybe less risk averse. I don't know if they're less risk averse, but they're they're willing to roll the dice a little bit more. Are people that are doing flex jobs? Are they what what is their what's their personality like in their ability to risk? Because this is you're, for some, this is very daring. Yeah, you're right, especially with freelance um, and contract work, where you're basically your own boss. You're more or less starting your own business. Um, when you go out as a freelancer, you're responsible for everything: your own health care, your own taxes, uh, invoicing, making sure that you get paid by these clients that you're taking on. So that freelancing in particular really takes some special skill sets. You have to be really well organized, not only have the skills that you're offering, you know, let's say you are a graphic designer or a writer or uh, a computer engineer, but you also have to have business skills too, um, to be able to market yourself and actually find clients. Um, So that one is definitely one to consider a lot and make sure you do your research before you jump in. Um, and then with working from home and having a flexible schedule, you know, it's it's more of those things of, you know, the focus, the self-management, um, all of those kind of skills that go into it. Hmm. Now, at FlexJobs.com, where you work, talk to us about what is the goal of, of your organization and your website. Sure. So FlexJobs is a job search service. We specialize in these sorts of jobs, which is why I talk a lot about this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so we list telecommuting, flexible schedule, part-time, and freelance jobs on our site. And the main thing with our site is that everything is pre-screened. So a lot of the work-from-home jobs in particular that you find out there are scams. There's a ton of scams in that area, and you've probably seen those emails that, that pop up in your spam box every mm-hmm. now and then promising tons of money for working from home in your pajamas. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's things like that, but there's also really sophisticated scams out there. So. The reason that we founded FlexJobs was to make it possible for people looking for real professional-level flexible jobs, including work-from-home jobs, to find those without having to worry about scams. So that's basically how we were founded, was to to have one clearinghouse kind of place for flexible jobs at a professional level that are pre-screened, don't have any scams, um, and are just really legitimate flexible jobs. It's uh, interesting. I just did a search on your site for my city. And amazing stuff, job opportunities from like a urology surgical coder, which sounds really hard, um, but to being a vice president, writers, uh, directors of commodity management, all of these different jobs. I mean, some. I mean, these are adjunct faculty, information security. These aren't just you know data entry jobs. Teachers. It's you've got every kind of job. Yeah, that's that's a perfect way of putting it. It's it's people are really surprised uh, at the of the variety of jobs that can be done flexibly. And like you said, with there are some that are kind of those stereotypical work from home jobs, which are real types right. of jobs, data entry, customer service. Um, but there are so many more types of jobs out there, and that's one of the big things we are always trying to do is just educate people that. There are flexible jobs for your career field. We actually look at, I think, over 55 career fields now, um, and there are flexible jobs in all of them. And some offer more you know, telecommuting than others, and others offer more flexible schedules than others. So oh. um, you really have to do some research before you, um, you really get to know what's out there for your particular career, but there's a lot out there. I mean, we saw um, actually still posted today there are a number of high school PE teachers that are virtual positions. So you are working online teaching gym and health oh, wow. <laughs> across the country. So <laughs> it's yeah, great. something for everybody. <laughs> that is great. Totally. Um, what would you tell the new college grads these that are coming out 
I mean, is it should would it be better to go get into a company, kind of experience that? What advice do you give the college grad? Uh, I think it really depends on what they're most interested in. Um, so from my perspective, you know, when I graduated college, I'm glad that I had that in-office uh, experience just because I didn't know what it was like to work in an office until I had graduated college and went off and got my job. Um, and then, I, you know, working at home, I now kind of can compare the two and say, I don't think I would ever go back to an right. office. I really like working from home. So it might be good to test it out and, and really focus on, the position itself, the work that you would be doing, but are you know are there are there other types of flexibility involved in it? So maybe not ruling out anything based on the flexibility, but just thinking about what you most want. Um, if it's to work from home, that's great. If it's to have a flexible schedule, that's another option. Um, so thinking about what you really want, and then going out and finding the companies that support that type of work uh, and how you want to do it to find that really good match for you. And it also looks like you could fairly easily, if you wanted to build, so it's you're not only ever just doing one type of job. You could have two dot two two jobs that are different, but could you know be synergistic. Yep, exactly. We see that too, where people either don't want to choose between two different career fields that they're really interested in, or they have one kind of you know quote unquote day job where that's their main source of income, but then they have these freelance projects on the side where they're building up portfolios, they're getting a little more experience to eventually move into that career field more full-time. So, yeah, if you have if you have ideas and you're not exactly what sure of what you want to do, which I know for college students, sometimes you get done with college and you think, well, I, I really don't know which direction I want to go in. Um, you know, freelancing and part-time work can give you the option to actually test out those different ideas instead of just committing to one 40 hour a week full-time job, mm. you know, put your, put your feet in different areas and, uh, and see what feels best. Yeah. Now, Bree, as we wrap it up, what would you say, what would you say is a sign? So if you're just kind of the typical, go sit in your cubicle, put your head down and just hammer it out. What would be, what are some signs we should look for that might tell us it, it might be time to look at a more flex, flexible job, um, you know, what tells us, what are the indicators it's time to maybe look around? <laughs> Good question. I would say, uh, you know, is it the office environment that you're in? What are your, what are your relationships with your coworkers like? Uh, do you have any sort of flexibility? Are you bumping up against your boss when you're asking for time off or you need to take your kid to the doctor or whatever it might be? Like all those little things where life intersects with work. How, how much friction is there for you in those areas? Um, you know, if your commute is terrible, this is one of the biggest things that pushes people into more flexible jobs is their commute is just the worst. Mm. Their job isn't so bad, but getting to their job is the most difficult part. And then they wind up at work at 9 a.m. grumpy and frustrated, <laughs> and that's how they start their work day every day. Um, yeah. That's not pleasant. <laughs> no, it's want, not. So. That's a good sign, too. Your commute and then just, you know, all those times that life intersects with work, how well can you uh, juggle that? And if you can't juggle it very well, it might be time to get a flexible job. Great advice, Bree. Thank you so much. Appreciate uh, your great work there at uh, Flex Jobs. Honestly, I'm impressed. Go check out the web the website, flexjobs.com. Um, whether you're an employer or an employee, it just it'll open up your mind like crazy. Plus, just wonderful resource to get more job tips, ideas to to make your workplace fit you. Awesome stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Wrap up hour number two. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends. You know, finding a job, it's a, it's a hard thing, let alone, you know, making sure you have the right skills, the right, uh, the right aptitude to do it. Plus, <laughs> you, you still got to do the job. And that's the problem. I don't know that I could do a flex. Uh, well, I could. But I, in fact, I kind of do. But the the flex, too flexible, might might make, uh, lead you to some mistakes. There's a story about, um, well, just listen, data entry errors are often harmless unless you happen to be an international pilot. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen to an airplane if the pilot misentered the coordinates for where they needed the plane to go? You're yeah. going to tell us. Well, it got very interesting. According to Australia Nine's, uh, Nine News crew, um, an Air Asia flight crew learned this lesson when it attempted to fly from Sydney to Malaysia, only to end up in Melbourne. It seemed the captain errantly plugged in the coordinates, uh, and they they write down the coordinates before the flight, which amounts to a difference of nearly seven thousand miles, and completely wrong continents. Just a bit outside the limit there. Oddly, um, normally the first officer is the one that handles the chore, but the captain went outside to do an external flight check, and uh, the captain's uh, earmuffs weren't working properly, so they switched roles. Anyway, when the plane uh, was taxiing on the runway, its navigation system began going a little kablooey. For instance, it was flashing terrain, terrain, terrain as it was on the runway. But the crew brushed that off. Ah, that's no big deal. It's just a little weird. Minor glitch. We'll fix that. And then they got up in the air, and the next thing they knew, they were on their way to Melbourne. Missed it by that much. The pilots requested permission to make a U-turn when they found out about the mistake to Sydney. But then the weather had turned, and they were instructed to fly to Melbourne instead. Can you imagine everybody on the airplane like, so are we in Malaysia yet? I think I'd rather go to Melbourne. I would, too. And that makes sense, because how many airplanes now from Malaysia? There's something about Malaysia. That was a subconscious problem he had. He just like, no, we're not doing that. Uh, Also, um, a little story for you about a Domino's delivery truck driver crashes while uh, doing a wheelie, showing off. The pizza delivery driver was sent sprawling across the tarmac after trying to pop a wheelie on a South London high street. Domino's Pizza has launched an investigation after footage emerged on the social media on social media um, showing that the driver toppling over um, after trying the motorcycle stunt. The video prompted on Twitter uh, a Twitter user to ask, "I wonder what state the pizzas were in." I think that's a new TV show, Domino's Pizza Special Investigators. But the guy doesn't know why he went down. But Probably you, slipped on some anchovies or something. He slipped on something. But there's something. It reminds me of old commercials with Domino's Pizza. <laughs> so the Noid, the Noid was, was on the motorcycle? The Noid is back. Wow. Knocked him right over. He shouldn't be delivering pizzas. In fact, I think his whole thing was that he was trying to uh, trying to prevent the delivery of pizzas. That's it. The Noid is a pizza preventer. He's back, folks. So be careful this weekend if you're ordering pizza. Just know the Noid 
is going to mess it up for you. That's hour number two of the show. We'll take a break, come back, get into the movies. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. However you feel about evolution, survival of the fittest, we've got an audio that may show you, um, I don't know. There's just a time where you got to let nature take its course. A bear came across a, a solo kayaker, Mary Maley, who was on a solo kayaking trip from Ketchikan to Petersburg, Alaska. And, uh, you know, was posted outside of uh, the U.S. Forest Service cabin in Berg Bay. And uh, she had just carried her tent, food, and gear into the cabin before she was going to go on a four-mile hike, I guess. So she just removed the food from her kayak and carried it up to the cabin. Well, she heard something outside while she was having her lunch, and she came out to find a bear, right? Um, And the bear started to approach her, and this is the beginning of... I'm pretty sure not the best bear handling technique. Let's listen. No! Get away from the kayak! Stop it, bear! Bear, you're breaking it! You're breaking my kayak! Why are you breaking my kayak? What am I going to do? Stop that, bear! Bear, stop! Stop breaking my kayak, please! Please She is the nicest victim of a bear uh, terroristic act on a kayak I've ever heard. She didn't even swear. That was, okay, it's a bear. It's a bear. It's doing what bears do. By the way, this is after the bear started getting curious about her and followed. uh, She could smell the food she was out there eating. And, uh. Holy cow. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? Gosh darn it. You bear. She's talking to it like it's um like it's her child. Not like a ferocious wild animal that could kill her. And she even and we didn't have the audio for that, but as the bear approached, she said, "I'm going to spray you with pepper spray." She is so nice. I'm sure the bear feels really good about her. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste good. No. It's not even food, bear. It's plastic. It's 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 a carcinogen. 
You ought not be eating that, Bear. It's just plastic. <laughs> She's obviously stressed, but, you know, maybe a really loud noise, you know? If she had a gun, don't know if she did, maybe that's where you use a gun to just shoot a gun and the bear would run away. Or in that case, a bomb. She could just drop a bomb. Why are you here? You're supposed to be asleep. (laughs) You're supposed to be asleep. Hey, bear, did you not know it's sleepy time? Why aren't you hibernating? Holy cow. (sighs) Now, this is a perfect example of where if we just let nature be nature, Mary would be dead. Because if you're going to talk to a bear that way, by the way, the bear destroyed the kayak. Please stop breaking my thing. (laughs) She's very nice. Please. Stop breaking my things. Oh, wow. She ended up, the bear left. I think to probably go hibernate because he didn't know. What she doesn't know is there's like no bear deadline to hibernate. You know, when it's just ready, it's just going to go. She's like, I thought. supposed to be asleep. Yeah. Well, she had to then she tried to call down there's a sailboat out there in the in the bay and she tried to get a hold of the people on the sailboat but she they couldn't she couldn't get a hold of them so she had to swim in the cold water out to the sailboat and oh! That, <laughs> oh it's just so funny this is why you know you know, people laugh about all these hunters and the fishermen and all these outdoorsmen that have guns. But that would have been a good time to have a gun. Not to shoot the bear. You don't need to kill the bear. Just fire the gun and scare the bear away. Why are you my kayak? I it! <laughs> you could just scream. And she notice what she used. Questions. Why are you eating my thing? What if the bear just said, What am I going to do? What what you're going to do, lady? What if the bear just stood up and put his hands on his hips and like, okay, what I want you to do is shut your cake hole. You're making too much noise and you're stressing me out. That's, That's just funny. That's just funny. It's such a contrast. It just seems like she's a city slicker. Please stop. Please, wild animal. I think she's talking to you, Matt. Is she, is she talking to me? Yeah. Am I beating this dead horse? Please stop. Can't you just see like a mountain lion rawr, ripping? Please, why are you doing this? You're going to ruin my shirt. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? <laughs> oh, I bet you she's such a lovely woman. She really is. I'm sure she's the, she's the kind of woman. By the way, she's videotaping the whole thing. And you can see the bear walk up to her and she's like, I'm going to spray you with pepper spray like it's a warning. You kids, I'm going to get you. Anyway, she sprays the bear. She's lucky to be alive. She reminds me of you, Ben. Lovely person.
That time when the raccoon came in? Yeah. Silly raccoon grabbing on my neck, sticking your teeth. <laughs> anyway, great, uh, great lessons for all of us. There's a time to be nice. There's a time to like plead. And she used orders. Stop that. She used questions. She said, please and thank you. She would said, gosh, instead of swearing. I totally appreciate that. There's just a point that it wasn't working. He thrashed your kayak. Make a noise. Scare the thing. Just scare it. Throw a rock at it. I didn't want to hurt it. Of course you didn't. You're just lucky to be alive. Hope we've all learned a lesson today. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're... They're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, And it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits. Okay, And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Isn't that interesting? One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? They, like, they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua News Agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So... A single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. 
it persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. As we progress throughout life, we're constantly on the lookout for those things that will help make our lives longer, more enjoyable. For some, it's a simple walk in nature. Just as the doctor had ordered, others need a busy schedule to feel that they are being productive. For all of us, however, there are some simple steps we can take to make our lives better. Dr. John Day is the director of Heart Rhythm Services at Intermountain Healthcare, and he's here today to talk to us about uh, some discoveries he's had about longevity, living longer, healthier lives. Dr. John Day, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the air. I love uh, this topic because you're about my age and you're going through many of the changes that uh, I've gone through. I've gained weight. Um, I feel like my body's falling apart. I'm exhausted. And you really went through a crisis of your own health, and that led you into wanting to discover some solutions of longevity. Talk to us about your story. Absolutely. You know, it's something that I think most of us – Somewhere around age 40 or somewhere in our 40s, oftentimes the, the American lifestyle catches up with us. Um, if you've got great genes, maybe it's in your 50s. If your genes aren't so great, it might even be in your 30s. But it, sooner or later, it all catches up with you. And, and that's what I experienced. Um, you know, growing up, I had this crazy idea as somehow as a cardiologist that as long as I exercised, I was healthy. Um, but the problem is I wasn't sleeping at night. Um, had uh, stress was overtaking my life. My diet was was absolutely awful, um, and and I basically just ate junk all day. But as long as I was exercising, I thought all was well, until I hit my mid forties and I couldn't exercise anymore. And that hmm. for me was really really the rock bottom because exercise was my drug. Yeah, that's how you self medicated. <laughs> absolutely, and so that really led me on this this path of discovery and. I speak Chinese, and I regularly lecture at cardiac meetings uh, around the world, but my favorite is in China where I, I, because I get to use my Chinese and speak there, and, and colleagues shared with me uh, a small remote village that was cut off from the rest of the world, and I think that was really the secret. Our secret is that they were cut off from the world where people lived these 
amazingly long and healthy lives, free of all the, the chronic diseases that we seem to get at such young ages here in the U.S. Like, and the, the being cut off was interesting when I read the article um, about you because the cut off meant they weren't able to get the sugars they that we all eat, the salts, a lot of these other, and the pollution probably. Absolutely, and and that was the thing about this village is um, until recently there were no roads into the village, and so if you wanted sugar, it was seven days round trip mm. by foot. You couldn't get tobacco. You couldn't get sugar. You couldn't get processed foods. You couldn't get all these other things. And consequently, you know, people were physically active throughout the day, and they had to rely on themselves, their communities, their families. Um, and so being cut off was really kind of the, the secret sauce, if you will. Yeah. And they, I mean, then you, so you discovered this village. You had, always, you had already been researching because um, uh, you had gone to Stanford, you had been to Johns Hopkins, you're an expert in heart rhythm issues. I mean, and the heart seems to be kind of the core of where a lot of these modern-day diseases and disorders hit, the overeating, the, the sugar. Exactly. So, um, but you yourself had gained some weight, and how did your health fall apart where you couldn't even exercise? You know, it got to the point, uh, you know, I had an autoimmune disease, um, problems with my spine, uh, esophagitis. Mm. I was overweight. My blood pressure was up. My cholesterol was up. Um, and it just got to the point that even just shooting baskets um, with my kids became too painful. And that's when I knew I had to make changes. And, you know, to, in trying to get through the day, you know, the fatigue of trying to get through the day and doing surgeries and it was just, it was too much for me. And so I was, I was looking for solutions both for myself as well as for my patients, because we know from studies that at least 80% of all heart disease is totally preventable mm. with lifestyle. And for those who have already been diagnosed or have a heart condition, in many cases, it's reversible. And so I was on a, I was on a journey um, for both to heal myself and to find something that would work better for my patients. It was you know, I was getting to a point in my career was as frustrating as you do procedures, you think you've got the heart condition under control, but then three, five, seven, eight years later, it's back mm. and you're doing another procedure. And so we, we had to find more durable solutions. So you then kind of, I guess, reverse engineered what, what is the lifestyle difference with these villagers from China and, and what did you come up with? What are some of the differences that we, we need to incorporate? You know, it really comes down to just five simple things, to boil it down in a nutshell. And whether it's this village in China that, that we've researched and is going to be coming out in a, in a future book next summer, um, or whether it's other longevity cultures, these five themes tend to you see them in every longevity culture. Um, number one, eat real food. They're not eating a lot of sugar. They're not eating processed foods. They're eating real food with a heavy emphasis, particularly on, on fresh produce, vegetables, fruits, um, legumes. Um, number two is that they're moving throughout the day. Um, they're not sitting all day. And so that makes it a challenge in the U.S., but you can adopt things, even for people who, who work in an office all day. Number three, they embrace stress. They have this healthy mindset. Number four, 
They get restorative sleep each night. And number five, they're socially connected. Mm. Embrace stress, uh, socially connected. And what was the other one? That, uh, uh, eating real food, moving yeah. throughout the day, and restorative, oh, restorative sleep. sleep. I mean, really, it's it seems like the basics, except it also seems like stuff that we don't have time to do. Like, yeah, I'm too busy to get socially connected. I've got to get to work. <laughs> and yet one of the things I love about your story is how you've incorporated all of this into your life, into your daily into your daily routine. Let's just get into the first one and then we'll come back and do the other four. When you say eat real foods, um, is it true you start the day with salad? <laughs> I typically will have a, a salad as part. Of, I try to have vegetables as part of each meal. And that's something that they did in this village. And, and a habit that I've tried to incorporate is that vegetables are a part of each meal. And, and why we have this construct in the U.S. that you have to start the day with processed carbohydrates or other things, it just doesn't make sense Mm-mm. to me. Um, and so, yeah, so a, a typical breakfast may include uh, you know, a nut butter, um, some fruit, uh, a salad. And it, it doesn't have to, have to be strange. Um, vegetables, just the, the health-giving properties, heart disease-preventing properties, cancer disease-preventing properties. Are, I mean, the studies on this are, are just, I mean, they're too numerable to count. Yeah. And yet something as simple as changing your diet um, and then I guess adding exercise eventually or more exercise, I mean, working and walking all day, which is the, the moving all day goal, you, you were able to lose how many pounds, 20 pounds? It, it turned out to be about 30, 30 pounds that, that came off. And, and that wasn't intentional. That was something that just came off as a byproduct of hmm. living this way. And that's, that's the thing that's, that's amazing is um, in, this, in this village until recently, obesity, anybody even being overweight was totally unheard of until just recently. Living this natural lifestyle, you don't have to worry about a diet. You don't have to worry about counting calories. You don't have to worry about any of that. If you're just, just focus on the basics, eating real food and, 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 uh, and moving throughout the day. And yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's funny, we get so into the diet, like the diet is the answer, but the diet is just part of their life. Yeah, diets don't work. And for most of my patients, diets are really just a four letter word. Um, it's lifestyle. It's living a more natural lifestyle, a lifestyle that is, is the, way, the way our bodies were designed to work. Yeah, I love that idea. Well, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. John Day from I Intermountain uh, Intermountain Healthcare, um, and he's an expert. Uh, graduated from medical school at Johns Hopkins. Also, uh, did his residency training at Stanford University, and is now the director of Heart Rhythm Services at Intermountain Healthcare. He's he's published more than 100 manuscripts, abstracts, book chapters. He really knows what he's talking about, and we are trying to reverse. Uh, life in a way and create a healthier uh, longevity, something where we can live longer and, and also live healthy while we're living longer. Powerful stuff. We'll continue the discussion in just a minute. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is uh, Dr. John Day. If you go to his website, drjohnday.com, he is uh, an expert in uh, cardiology and arrhythmias of the heart. Um, But more importantly, I think, is he's trying to find old school solutions and uh, from traditional um, long-living cultures and... um, He's bringing those kind of old school practices to his everyday high tech practice at Intermountain Healthcare. Doctor John Day, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Talk about it. So you've you've talked about the fact that we've we really part of the battle is to eat real foods, right? Get the healthy kind of true blue real life diet, not the ones that come in cardboard boxes and then taste like cardboard boxes. Um, talk to us about uh, some other steps. What else do we need to do to uh, – you were able to get moving is is quite honestly part of the goal, right? You just got to be moving all day. Absolutely. And, and that was something that, that was a miss in my life is uh, like so many other people – yeah, I was uh, I was that weekend warrior. I would do big workouts on the weekend, but during the day, yeah, even as a surgeon, I was sitting through my surgeries, um, like so many other office workers. I was sitting throughout the day, and and that was contributing to a lot of what was going on, especially with my knees and my spine and my back and other things. And and I think the key message is. Even if you're even if you're an office worker, it doesn't mean you're you're doomed to get heart disease or other problems. You can incorporate movement, even working an office job here in the U.S. Mm. But you you could almost hear people saying, "Well, yeah, see, John, okay, that's where I'm different because I need to sit because my back hurts." And <laughs> and yet, when people find out that you write, you've written a book, and you do a lot of writing while standing on a treadmill walking um, and writing on a computer, you, I guess there's, there's not always a great excuse for why we're not moving. There really isn't. And, you know, maybe, maybe your employer isn't willing to help you with some of these things. Everyone could bring in, for example, an Amazon box uh, to their office and just putting their computer on the box and standing is, is one step. Or there are apps on your phone that can remind you to get up and, and walk around every 20 or 30 minutes just to, to get a little bit more movement in the day. Um, trying to walk where you can, parking at the furthest parking lot space, never taking an elevator. There are so many ways that we can reverse engineer and get movement back into our lives. Did, did all of this walking, this movement, this activity – um, even standing in surgery, uh, and then I guess that strengthened your body enough to 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 help with the back problems, to help with the other health issues. Exactly, and that's that's part of the whole principle of, for example, of physical therapy. Um, if something is injured or in your body, resting only makes it. Other than you know, made perhaps with a broken bone, but that's just a short period of time six weeks for the bone to heal, and then you're up moving. And that's the fundamental principle of physical therapy is that you reverse the pain with movement or activity. Mm. These um, these villages you found in China, for example, they, they have to embrace moving all day because that's the only way they get anything done. That's the only way they get their food, right, their water. Exactly. Until recently. Now, of course, things have changed. The economic miracle of China has reached even 
this village, which is in the remote border of southwest China, very close to the Vietnam border. They now have roads. They have a highway, et cetera. But until recently, until just recently, yes, all of the farming was hand farming. No, I mean, it, there were no mechanized tools or machines or anything. It was hand farming. They were carrying loads of vegetables and produce up and down mountainsides on their backs. Mm. And that was their way of life. You had to move. You, yeah, yeah. You move or you die. And one of the things that I found interesting, too, is these were multi-generational households, right, where with three or four or five generations of families living in one home. Exactly. You bring up a great point. And, and this also may help to explain why aging, particularly in, in some of the Asian cultures, like in the Japanese culture and some of these others, where aging seems to be so much more graceful and enjoyable is that within the Asian culture, aging is a status symbol. The older you get, the wiser you are, the more people pay attention to you, the more they incorporate you, the more they want to hear what you have to say. And the families were close. Um, these these uh, elderly people are all in multi-generational families, three, four, five generations under one roof. And they're integrated. They're part of the, the way. They worked in the fields until they were no longer able to do so. And then they were taking care of the children or helping with household chores. Nobody rested. There was no concept of retirement. Hmm. You contributed until your very last day of life. That is, I mean, we keep thinking, oh, the day I can retire and just kick back. I mean, I guess the idea is hopefully the day I can retire is the day I no longer have stress. But your third point is, well, no, there's a point we need to learn to just embrace stress. We need the stress as part of our daily life. We do. We do. And, and you bring up a couple of excellent points there. As a cardiologist, um, what I've observed in my practice over the years is the most dangerous day of a man's life is the day he retires. Now, for women, it doesn't seem to be that way. And I think that's because a lot of women are more socially connected. They have more things going on in their lives, whereas men, we tend to focus our whole life revolves around our work. And you take that away, and suddenly... I'm seeing people with heart problems within just a few months mm. of retirement. Um, and so you, you've, you've got to, you, you have to have a plan. Um, life has to be meaningful. How do we embrace stress? Uh, and what did you see in the village? And what do you see in your own life? Now, this was actually something that I really did a complete um, uh, turn on this is early in my career, I was always I was telling instructing patients you've got to reduce stress reduce stress it's not good on your heart until I came across some provocative studies showing that people who embrace stress they may have stress in their lives but they don't view it as a problem they thrive on it actually these people in in a number of studies have the lowest mortality and the lowest rates of heart disease and it really got me to thinking maybe there's a different way of approaching it. And that's the way they did it in this village. Hmm. They went through a lot. Some of the crazy failed economic policies of Chairman Mao through the years, the Chinese Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. But these people embraced it. It was part of life. Um, and consequently, stress actually gave them, gave them power. Um, it gave them motivation. It gave them energy. And, and I think we're misguided if we're trying to 
uh, you know, construct a life free of stress because it's impossible. Stress is, is part is part of this life. Yeah. In fact, it's um, it's I guess we we constantly try to build systems with decreased stress. And yet you could almost see that I guess they could move their house closer to the river or they could realize that climbing the river every day is a stressor to their life that probably helps over time. Right. It's like exercise. Exercise is stress for our body. Right. If you don't put your body through that, then then you the body starts to atrophy. Um, and so there is a concept there of this distress versus eustress, distress uh, meaning, meaning stress that brings us down. Eustress is stress that actually lifts us up. And and so for many people, it's a change in mindset. It's a change in way the way they view their lives, their families, their this, their that. We're finding a way, whenever possible, to embrace the stress. Mm. You also mentioned uh, as the fourth point, restorative sleep, which I, it sounds like would be distinctly different from sleep. It is. Um, we don't sleep very well here in the U.S. Um, many people go to bed much later than they should. Consequently, they're getting up too early in the morning. They're fatigued. They, they caffeinate themselves to get through the day. And this is, this is not healthy. Sleep apnea is another big problem here in the U.S. We need that restorative sleep. Sleep is part of the healing process. Sleep can protect us. And so making sleep a priority rather than trying to wear a badge of who can get by with the least, but rather to change the paradigm. Mm. And wh- what happens in during sleep that is so restorative? What is going on in the body? Probably, at least with regards to longevity, the most important thing that's happening during sleep is it, the body goes through a repair process. For example, um, mutations that may have occurred in dividing cells with the DNA or other things. These are the chance for the body to to repair. Um, and it's something that's still a bit of a mystery that we don't fully understand, but every study out there shows that getting restorative sleep is is critical for for health and longevity. Hmm. And it's, um, I mean, I guess when you compound that, if you've been walking and moving around more each day, sleep might come more easy to you because you're tired, you're exhausted. If you've had a good, uh, if you've had a good diet, you might, you know, have less caffeine and less stimulants in your body to keep you, to keep you awake. I, I guess it, it goes hand in hand with every other point we've been talking about. Exactly, exactly. And you bring up a great point. And that's part of the challenge here in the U.S. is you get in a vicious cycle. Um, people go to work, they're, they're, they're sitting all day long, they're eating that leftover candy that their office worker or coworkers brought in. Um, it's a stressful job, then they go home at night, they're sitting. And so they never get a chance to process that stress, to work out that stress, to embrace that stress. And then I think at nighttime, it, it leaks it bleeds right into their sleep and then they're they're ruminating over their day at night and they can't sleep whereas a great workout and a and a healthy diet um most people sleep much better hmm. does um and then finally is just the point of socially connecting how how did you see in the villages they were socially connecting and and how does it really impact our health and this is something that most people when they think of for example, preventing heart disease, they're just thinking about uh, 
eat better, move more, but being socially connected. We are social creatures, and loneliness is a big risk factor for heart disease. Many studies have shown this. Loneliness is a predictor of uh, an early death, and we are socially connected. And, and social connection could take the form of many different ways. It, it could be with our neighbors. It could be with our, our place of religion, churches. It could be in our community. It doesn't matter. It could be a hobby or some other group. And that's what they had in the village, is that this was a small village, 530 people. They came together. They weathered the, the storms, the hardships, the economic distress, the others. Families were there for each other. Um, and they were connected. And that's the challenge here in the U.S. when so many families are, are spread out across the country. But thanks to technology and other things, we can bring families closer together. Um, and we can create time for, to connect more with others. Well, and you can almost imagine having grandparents that live in the home, great-grandparents that live in the home in the United States. You could hand your kids off and you go get exercise. You could have time to go even improve your own marriage and your own life because you have multiple generations raising the family. Exactly. And that's something that you'll see in a lot of the, the within the Hispanic community as well as the Asian community is with those multi-generational homes, yes, as people get older, they're still contributing. Everyone can contribute. And also, they gain from that benefit with their grandchildren, and their grandchildren benefit. Mm. Um, it, it works in both directions. Yeah. How powerful. Um, and so when you saw the village and you started working with them many years ago, what, what was their life expectancy compared to the, the life expectancy in the United States? So that's a great question. Um, and if you look at the raw numbers, they don't look as good as one might expect. And a lot of that was because this was a poor, remote area of China. And right. so infectious diseases, until recently, um, would claim the lives of about, of about half of their children. Mm. Um, but if you could make it to age 18, so if you could survive to age 18, because there were no doctors, there were no vaccines, there was nothing. But if you could survive to age 18 then odds are you were going to go make it to age 90 and beyond. Wow. Um, but it was surviving the infectious diseases of childhood. Now, more recently, public health measures have extended to all areas of China, and so the childhood uh, diseases have virtually been eradicated in China, just like everywhere else in, in more modern societies. And so from that standpoint, they're living longer, but now just as soon as that hits – now processed foods, Coca-Cola, some of these others are now making their way into mm. this village. Mm. What, um, what advice would you leave us with in the end? I mean, if we, wanted to, if we wanted to kind of do this reversal in our lives and take back our health, our lives, what, what would you say is the, the first thing to get started on? So the first thing for a lot of people depends on where they are at. But um, for most people, I think starting either with real food or physical activity usually is the first step. And then it's kind of like you get the domino effect. Um, if, you can, if you can get the workout, if you can make exercise a part of your daily routine, you're probably 
going to start eating better. You're probably going to start sleeping better. Um, you probably are going to be more socially connected because now you may be in a class at the gym or doing other things with neighbors, etc. Yeah. Um, or and so oftentimes. Um, so it may vary from person to person what the one thing is for them, but I typically try to look for the, for the domino effect, to try to find the one key domino that will make the others fall naturally. Yeah, well, I think, I think it's powerful, and it's a great story anyway, just seeing your transformation, but also just your life. Uh, I think you're a great role model for all of us on this. Dr. John Day, go to his website, drjohnday.com, where you can find his blog, his podcast, so many wonderful tools and insights. Plus, he's also going to be bringing out a book next year about longevity. Powerful uh, tools for all of us. You want to be around, right? You want to be able to be healthy enough to to take care of your family and be there for your family. And uh, it's a great way to do it. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, our own Leanna Tan will be teaching us how to be a rapper. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. You know, at the Matt Townsend Show, we like to teach you new skills every day and and any tips we can give you to enhance your life. Today, one of our producers, Leanna Tan, wants to teach a unique skill that will add some fun to your day. She and a friend will teach us all how to be a rapper. I was reading all these life hacks online today, and one of them listed a bunch of excuses we give ourselves for not achieving our dreams. Like, people will think I'm crazy. My life will be messed up if it doesn't work out. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too busy. And then I thought, they're right. What am I waiting for? I am never too old to learn anything. I'm tired of making excuses and being a dream killer. It's time to fulfill my secret dreams. So I brought in my good friend, Soli Purcell, to teach me how to be a rapper. You know, I'm studying to be a rapper. Yeah, yeah. I want to work on my skills. So I compiled a list, mostly from WikiHow, just of like how I can be a rapper. And you can tell me what you think about these. Oh, I got you. Okay. Number one, it says that I need <coughs> to choose a rapper name. Yes. My name is gotta have a rapper name so how do i choose one what's the best way to choose a rapper name it's gotta be something that's close to you i guess but it, so it has to mean something to you l dizzle l dizzle that totally that represents actually me. really works yeah i like it yeah me too yeah you can find one for me soul soul um soulmate yeah <laughs> he's soulmate. your soulmate <laughs> that's a good one to become a rapper it says that i need to start memorizing some verses like of my favorite tracks and listen to them repeatedly until i've committed it to memory i have a couple verses of rap memorized i already performed this for you once this is when we very first met i was performing this on stage yeah you did that was legit that was literally so cool you should do it again mm. i feel it feel it He's a little bit old school for you. They go little something like I always try to be the flyest kid on the block. So that's when I got this bright idea. Throw the party of the month. All the fine girls couldn't turn it down. Now all I gotta do is get my parents out. Nah, send them to a show. Let me think. Hmm, it's gotta be long though. The mics are on fire here at Sweet. BYU. Am I on my way to being a rapper? 
you're one step closer. You Great. got it. You got your name. You got some verses down. Let's see what's next step. The third step says write a lot of rhymes. Um, I've been trying, you know, rhyming couplets. That's good. Yeah, I thought of you. I wrote a rap for you. Really? Practicing my rhyme scheme. Oh, thank you. Let me bring up the beat. Uh. Yeah. Uh. My name is Liana and I'm here with Soli. When I was younger, I once held a roly-poly. We're in the studio recording a rap. This one's so good, I know you all want to clap. Soli is cool, he is my friend. Now I'll throw it to him because this is the end. Yeah. All right, can I throw it to you now? Throw it to me. So how do you choose <clears throat> what to write about? It's just You just have to feel it. So and you said that you rap about the gospel. So your Christian beliefs are important to you. So you would try to incorporate those into your raps. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, it works. All right. I did my rap. <laughs> now let's see how well you can do. Let's give you the same beat. Mm. Here we go. Here we go. Coming in hot. Yo, we coming in cool. Liana and me straight out of BYU. Rolling in good and we rolling in smooth. You know we be repping up that loyal royal blue. Cause uh, we know how it is. We on that successful magnet. We out here spitting fire on little tangents. Liana Tashi's cool. A really good girl. She got her own talk show. She run the world. Here at BYU our kids know how to dress. And they more the words of Khaled. We the best. 100%. Same over here. The most sober kids. And not a sip of beer. Sit back. Relax. Listen to me first. I'm about to spit that truth, and this is how it go. We got that on a code, yeah, not a whiff of drugs. We keep it clean out here and give out free hugs. Mountain to my left, a mountain to my right. Surrounded by the giants that keep me safe at night. Cause the Y Mountain lit, it's somewhere you can hike. It makes BYU the best, I'm telling you why. James the Mormon said it, grinding and we working. Missionary work is what we got cooking. Now uh, I'ma take you to church, do a little preaching. Watch me work now. I'm a teacher, walking into church, praise God the Almighty. He giving me strength, cause he knows I can fight it. Trials, tribulations, since they coming and they going. Fight on, push through, cause we have the atonement. We have the gospel, we have God's love. I save you, Jesus Christ, fighting for us from above. Soulmate and Eldizzle out. Out. See, if I can become a rapper, the possibilities are endless. The world is your oyster. So stop making excuses and unleash your secret dreams. Well, I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. Parents, are you hard-pressed to find appropriate entertainment for your families that's also high-quality? Well, Cole and I are going to do our darndest to shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. Our episodes feature interviews, discussions about movies, TV, music, sports, literature, trivia games, and sometimes even comedic sketches. It's really an entertaining show about entertainment, and we're going to do our best to entertain you today. First off, we are going to share with you a little review for a movie that comes out today. It's the big release, and unfortunately, Cole was not able to see this film. There was a little snafu with the showtimes. I just didn't realize what I was getting into. I did. I meant to see The Meg. It seems like a good movie. So 
I have to say, I went into this movie with high expectations, which sounds ridiculous to say because it's a big, dumb summer movie about a giant shark, which is what but I was— But it could be a big, dumb summer movie about a shark. Which is exactly what I wanted. And I loved all of the marketing behind this. The trailer was so much fun. Uh, it's all this mayhem going on to the song Beyond the Sea. And there were posters that featured— Humans in their bathing suits with nutrition facts next to them. So a human was like 200,000 calories, you know. And, For a uh, mug. Right. There was even a hashtag, Save Pippin, which is the little dog that you see featured in the trailer Aww. that you wonder if this shark is going to come up and chomp this little tiny dog. Well, the I am going to say that this film is unfairly compared to Jaws and really – any shark movie after Jaws is going to go in with a disadvantage because Jaws really knocked it out of the park. The first Jaws, the first big Jaws or the first big shark movie, I should say, really knocked it out of the park the first time. So everybody else following is going to seem like a pale imitation. So this is a group of deep sea divers that are looking for these prehistoric creatures, this prehistoric world, if you will. And they find it, but then they need to be rescued because there's a little run-in with some of these creatures. So they call on Jason Statham, who is suffering from some, I guess you could call it post-traumatic stress from this failed mission at the beginning of the film. And he's kind of loafing in Thailand. So no surprise, he comes in and, and kicks the sharks behind. and But there is a lot of mayhem the problem is it's another one of those films where the trailer is better than the movie. Kind of like – We've uh, been seeing that recently. Yeah, like with uh, – what was it? Uh, Suicide Squad. And I was hoping that the laughs would be as big as the titular character and unfortunately they weren't. I was a little bored the first half. I wanted there to be a little more mayhem. I was like, OK, when are they going to get to the beach when all these people are trying to swim away from this giant shark? But – the Megalodon. I wanted a big dumb shark movie, and I think I got what I wanted. Just I didn't get everything that I wanted. And uh, I think you should still see it, Cole, because I'd be interested to hear what you have to think about The Meg. I will. Okay. Now, we want to take a little uh, a little minute here to go on not necessarily a tangent, but maybe a rant, if you will. And we want to talk about franchises we'll never see. So... To give some context to this, there are plenty of films that have come out that clearly they had it in their minds that they were going to turn this into a franchise, a this trilogy. This is the next big thing. Right. They're setting it up. The, it's a cliffhanger at the end of the movie. But then for one reason or another, usually because it didn't make enough money, it never materialized. And so, Cole, I'm going to give you an opportunity first to talk about – Maybe an honorable mention for your pick for a franchise we'll never see, and then the one that really hurts you to the core. So my honorable mention would be my lead one, except it doesn't quite fulfill your criteria. Okay. My honorable mention is Thor. Now, it did get a sequel and a third one, just like they had planned, but it didn't go according to plan. I pine for the Thor trilogy that I didn't get. Mm. Thor 2 was set to be directed by Patty Jenkins, who we now know can definitely hold superheroes in her hands and make an amazing Wonder Woman movie. It was supposed to feature, and that's what brought Natalie Portman back at the time. She was getting ready to kind of leave the superhero thing, do more serious acting. But with Patty Jenkins on board, she decided to come back, and it was supposed to be 
very much that the first Thor was Shakespearean. You know, it was taken over by Kenneth Branagh. It was big. It was epic. This was supposed to be a Romeo Juliet type love story between Natalie Portman and Thor at the time. And then Hmm. knowing from the comics that Natalie Portman, also her character, becomes the new Thor. When Thor becomes unworthy, she lifts Mjolnir and and takes on that mantle. We kind of were leading in that direction that her character could be amazing and could be what it is in the comics. But what we got... I th- I think it's okay, but it's really generic by the book Thor two. Okay, so much so that they had to reassess and relook at the franchise, changed entirely for Thor three. And I'd like you to stop the conversation right there because I feel like you're you're going to uh, speak blasphemy if you if you keep talking about Thor three, a bad movie. <laughs> Oh, but this I, is this is why we I'm, got I'm, one version of the, there's like an alternate version. There's an alternate timeline out there where we sure. got the good Patty Jenkins one. And then we got a, maybe a different director that was going to take Thor seriously in Thor three, because the whole Marvel universe just doesn't care about Thor. When we get together with the Avengers, he always just goes off and does something non-important mm. or the things that he's doing get forgotten about later. I want. I want a universe where we care about Thor. So it's interesting you bring up an alternate timeline. That's going to come into play here in a minute. And uh, I I am probably going to use the word arguably a lot during this discussion because— And then I will argue it. It's our first pick, and it's actually only the honorable mention. And I part of your uh, assessment I really don't agree with, but that's okay. Uh, so, Cole, what is your actual pick for franchises we'll never see? But the actual franchise that we actually didn't get to see at all was the Dark Universe from Universal. Oh. I I love horror movies. I have never made it any kind of a secret on this show that I do. And the Universal monsters in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s were the original universe. They were a cinematic universe. You had the Wolfman meets Frankenstein, and they were getting into each other's movies all the time back then. They kept Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi in business for a long time. It was so amazing to see these monsters back then get together and the fact that they all lived in the same place. Cinematic universes are second place now, and so, of course... When Universal was looking to get their next big thing, they turn back to those monsters and say, we're going to have a dark universe. We're going to bring the Invisible Man and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and and the Mummy all together to meet up and create a horror universe. Hmm. And what they gave us was a Tom Cruise-led action movie that just so happened to have a CGI mummy in it that made no money and could not launch which is a little boggling because if you look at it on paper, both Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie were involved, and they just had a huge success with Mission Impossible Fallout, which has uh, critically, technically, is Tom Cruise's uh, best movie ever. Technically. <laughs> According to Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Which I don't <laughs> care one lick about. But- okay. Yeah, so you have – this is where it's going to be important and this is where we're going to see our conversation turn a lot as we talk about directors is it matters if your director is passionate about your project Mm. because Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie doing a thing that they love, you get Mission Impossible 5 and 6. Right. Doing something that they just got brought in so that they could put Tom Cruise's name real big on the poster. Sure. And this is a man that doesn't really love CGI and I'm going to talk about this kind of thing later on in, in our conversation as well. It just never launched the way it should have. But if they had taken a serious horror route with it, 
I think that this dark universe could have been something special. Interesting. And to be fair to Christopher McQuarrie, I don't believe he directed that film. He was, he was just there. Sure. Um, and I'm going to say that Universal will rue the day that they decided to take that publicity photo featuring the cast of what would have been this Universal monster franchise that they had going on. This is a word to the wise for all those that yes. want to create a universe – Take it one movie at a time. Don't get your universe ahead of your horse, your cart before your horse. There you go. Well, my honorable mention for franchises we'll never see, and this one this one doesn't hurt as much as my actual pick, but it basically had a very similar theme to another movie that became a franchise, a franchise that I do not care for. A franchise that is quite annoying at this point. Whoa. The honorable mention is Megamind. Megamind is a film that came out around the same time, I think the same year even, as a little French-American film called Despicable Me. Now, Despicable Me was cute and fun it, it was, was so fluffy that I'm going to die. It was not not as good as Megamind. Similar in theme in that you have these two villains that end up trying to be good by the end of the film, right? In the case of Despicable Me, it's because there's a, a family involved. In the case of Megamind, it's because he falls in love. But basically, you have the same movie... Two totally different interpretations of it, but they're really not all that different when you break it down and take a look at it because uh, Megamind is played by Will Ferrell and uh, Despicable Me or Gru from Despicable Me is played by Steve Carell. They both have uh, minions that are called, in Despicable Me, minions, and in the case of Megamind, minion, because it's only one minion. Now... The minions from Despicable Me, I will admit, were cute at first, but after three Despicable Me films and a Minions movie, they've kind of outstayed their welcome. Megamind was fresh. It was funny. It started this whole thing of Will Ferrell playing these characters that mispronounce words, and there's a lot of funny banter with David Cross, who plays his minion. But we never got to see a sequel for this. But if you're pining for the sequel to Megamind, look no further than the Lego movie, which also has a very similar theme in that you have this villain that, for one reason or another, by the end of the film, also kind of becomes good. And this character also likes to mispronounce words and sounds very much like Megamind does. My actual pick, though, and this is the one that really hurts is Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Now, I know this might ruffle some feathers because I know that some people do not like this film at all. Quite a few people do not like this film at all. The f yeah, because remember, folks, we're talking about the film, not the Netflix thing. Right. And many people especially did not like Jim Carrey's portrayal of Count Olaf. I am not one of those people that dislikes the film or Jim Carrey in this film. 
Just to give you a, a breakdown of what this movie is about, it's based on the first three books in the series of Unfortunate Events. And there's your big problem, but keep going. Okay, <laughs> it's actually not any different from the Netflix series in those regards, really. But it was nominated for four Oscars. It won for makeup, and it should have won for art direction. It lost to The Aviator. It was also nominated for costume design and original score. The art direction slash production design in this film are beautiful. There are a couple of frequent Tim Burton collaborators involved in this project, and it's just this beautifully gothic, dark film that's produced by Nickelodeon. It's a kid's movie, and it's pretty dark considering that. Now, uh, even though Jim Carrey does not like doing sequels, he did say in an IGN interview, I don't have a deal for a sequel, but it's one that I wouldn't mind doing again because there are so many characters. I mean, it's just so much fun. It's so much fun being a bad actor playing a character. And that's what Count Olaf is. Now, what's really interesting about this film is what the franchise could have been. They could have, unlike every other franchise where they basically just do the same thing over and over again. This was in a 2009 MTV News interview. Brad Silberling, who was the director of the film, confirmed he still uh, talked about the project with Daniel Handler, the, uh, the book's author, and suggested the sequel to be a stop-motion film. Wait, I thought the author was Lemony Snicket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So they wanted to make the sequel a stop-motion film with each film being in a new medium due to the lead actors having grown too old to continue their roles. So in an odd way, he said, the best thing you could do is actually have Lemony Snicket say to the audience, okay, we pawned the first film off as a mere dramatization with actors. Now I'm afraid I'm going to have to show you the real thing. So this film is superior to the Netflix series. However, I will say, I will admit, the Netflix series is not bad. I just prefer the film version, and I definitely prefer the Jim Carrey portrayal of Count Olaf over Neil Patrick Harris, who a lot of people think is just doing a Jim Carrey impersonation. But this is another lesson for how to build a universe. So the Dark Universe got it wrong because they were trying to get their universe together before they even put out one movie This one was biting off more than it could chew as well because it's trying to base it off books back in the early mid-2000s when Twilight and Harry Potter were big as well. But it tried to grab three books and it very loosely had themes from all of them, but the third book isn't a really good breaking point anyway. And so they just – they didn't know – how much or what they were adapting for this movie. If they had done that part better, we might have gotten more, but – the movie itself just didn't have enough base. At least in the case of Megamind, though, they ended it cleanly. It didn't look like it was being set up for a sequel, whereas Lemony Snicket's Jim Carrey's Count Olaf escapes, and they definitely set it up for a sequel that never came. But in a way, it came in the form of the Netflix series Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, which you can watch now. Now that we've blown off a little steam and given you a little taste of franchises we'll never see, when we return, we're going to be talking about franchises we'd love to see, but in the hands of different directors. This is Screen Cleaning. We'll be right back. You know, it's no secret that there are a lot, and I mean a lot, of sequels in the theaters this summer. So much so that 
each of these sequels is starting to spawn an entire franchise. And unfortunately, some of these franchises have not gone according to plan or they're not to our liking. There are some examples of franchises that have gotten better with age, including uh, recently Mission Impossible Fallout. Has, Which I think is the best of the whole series. I that you, that would be arguable. I I there could definitely be an argument for that. However, there are other franchises like Jurassic Park or in this summer's installment Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom that although aren't completely bad, we it left us wanting more. You know, if only this movie could have been put into somebody else's hands. So what we're going to do here on the show today is we are going to talk about franchises we'd love to see switch hands or putting these franchises uh, into the creative minds of... Creative direction of different directors. Yes, Mm -hmm. better directors in most cases. (laughs) So this, the way that we came up with this list really evolved over time as we were planning because... At first, we were just going to choose a couple of films that we each wanted to talk about. But then we decided, wouldn't it be interesting to choose the same five films and just see what directors we'd come up with? Now, you mentioned earlier, Cole, an alternate universe, an alternate timeline. And that's going to be a very big theme of my picks. My picks are going to be presented as if we are in an alternate universe and this is just happening, okay? Um, so when I share those with you, I'll read them that way, just so you're not confused. Okay. I can get behind that. Okay. So the first film that we wanted to talk about, and I'll go first with this one, the first franchise we would like to see switch hands is the Jurassic Park franchise. Now, we all love the original Jurassic Park And I think at one point we would have said, hey, if we could put this franchise into the right hands, who better than to give it back to the original director, Steven Spielberg? We already tried that once, and Steven Spielberg provided us with the worst Jurassic Park movie in the entire franchise, in my opinion. Another obvious choice, and this is one of the ideas that kind of sparked this whole discussion, was the end of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom sets it up to be kind of like this Planet of the Apes type franchise that we were going to start seeing. And so I thought, who better than Matt Reeves, who directed two of the three... Dawn uh, of the Planet of the Apes, War of the Planet of the Apes, where the apes started as the bad guy, but now they're the guys we're rooting for, the same way the dinosaurs are kind of leaning towards. Right. He he passed on it as well because uh, he's a little burned out from directing these trilogies and franchises. Plus, uh, his Planet of the Ape movies were humorless, and there needs to be some humor in the Jurassic Park movie. So, that is why the producers of the new Jurassic Park film decided to hire a director by the name of Dan Trachtenberg. Are you familiar with Dan Trachtenberg, Cole? Um, I've heard of Michelle Trachtenberg. Okay. Got a relation there, maybe? Well, Dan Trachtenberg created another film that was very claustrophobic, very Hitchcock-esque. When I saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, I left the theater thinking, okay, now I don't want them to continue on with the same actors, the same storyline. Please, no more rescuing of the dinosaurs. I would love to see the Jurassic Park 
franchise go in the direction of an anthology series, right? And so this is a director of an anthology film or a film in an anthology series, the director of 10 Cloverfield Lane. Dan Trachtenberg. He also did an episode of Black Mirror. Which is the same kind of Twilight Zone-y right. kind of feel. You're so right. he's very much in that anthology realm. Now, this is the only film he's ever directed. Can you believe that? It's very surprising because I can't tell you how good this film is. I could, but we don't have time for that. So I'd like to see the next film be smaller in scale. I'd love for it to have – I'd love for it to be more about – atmosphere and give you this claustrophobic feeling. Some of the scenes in the original Jurassic Park were able to do that, like the kitchen scene where they're trying to escape from the raptors and the scene where Dr. Sadler goes to turn the power back on, like smaller, very claustrophobic, more intense scenes. And I know he can handle dialogue scenes well, too. And I would love to see that in the next Jurassic Park film. Dan Trachtenberg. I don't think you've ever met anyone that likes the Jurassic movies. So (laughs) just because you and I are kind of on the same page where we don't think that any since the first one have really lived up to that hype. Sure. There are still millions of people that will go see big dinosaurs eat things. And that's been proved. And so I don't want to play towards the people that are starting to fall away from this franchise. I want to give the people what they want. Now, okay. I, I also considered Matt Reeves, but you're right when you say humorless. And so why would you go to a horror anthology small-time director that that didn't have a lot of humor in either of the things that he's really done either? I, I, would, I would disagree dark with you. humor. These are – the people that go see Jurassic want your big-budget, dumb blockbuster fun – And so I'm hiring a director that recently became available and has worked with our star named James Gunn. Oh, interesting. Okay. The Marvel franchise, Mm -hmm. like I've mentioned before with Thor, was kind of on a downturn. And if any one man is responsible for the way Marvel movies look nowadays, it is James Gunn who is able to take big CGI action with funny characters and make everyone care about it. And so... We're going to play and make the Jurassic movies exactly what they've been trying to do anyway in the hands of a man that we know can do it and we know has a good relationship with our lead actor whose charisma is driving these new reboots. Oh, I don't want to alienate I could get a whole anthology. I, I'm intrigued by your offer and I would definitely go see it. But I'm afraid of alienating my fans in this new age where the fans can rise up against you. I know who goes and sees these movies. I'm going to give them the movie that they want, directed by James Gunn. Now, let's kind of keep it in the same category as far as thrillers or adventure, action movies, horror movies, and let's talk about Jaws. Now, I want to hear who your pick is first for Jaws. So, Jaws did get a couple bad sequels, similar to the way we view the Jurassic movies, and Jaws 2 and Jaws 3D are some of the worst sequels to a really great movie that we've ever had because they didn't really understand what was going on. The first movie was atmospheric and very much what you're talking about in the Jurassic franchise. Mm -hmm. And you held off on seeing the monster until the moments where it mattered most. And then the sequels and then the spoofs like the Piranha movies or even Sharknado just implode that and say, here's a shark, ha! Right. But I want to come back to the original, and I want to make a really serious and good horror that holds off on its villain. It holds off on its monster, and that can only be directed 
by Gareth Edwards. Wow. Gareth Edwards, who did Rogue One. He also did Godzilla, the the 2014 newer-ish one. Speaking of humorless. Ex- but this is Jaws now. <clears throat> Jaws didn't need – Jaws wasn't built on big, fun summer action. It was built on the atmosphere and the holding off. Rogue One – is is interesting because it has one of the best single scenes in all ten Star Wars movies now that we have. And the scene you're referring to is, is Darth Vader coming down the hallway. Ah, uh, at so the end you, of the film, you hold off on your villain. You give us bits and pieces up until then, but you hold off on your villain until it matters the most. And we finally a character. All growing up, Darth Vader was supposed to be the biggest bad that there was. In Night of the Museum 2, he just shows up with a bunch <laughs> of other, like, oh, bad guys. Like, what he's, a horrible movie that was. He is just the bad guy that mm-hmm. you think of. But yeah. we never really see him do his thing until Rogue Rogue One tells us why people are afraid of Darth Vader. And Godzilla was very much criticized for doing the same thing. When people want to go see Godzilla, they want to see Godzilla but he held off and then showed it to us when it mattered the most. That's what Jaws needs and can use where some of these other franchises, maybe it didn't work. This is right up his alley. I could really get behind that pick, Cole. I yeah, That's a great pick. Now, this is another one of the films that really sparked this whole discussion or people that or directors that we were thinking about or movies that are coming out like The Meg and you mentioned how a lot of these shark movies today are just like these big, dumb, ridiculous B movies that are Show a lot me of the fun. Shark. A lot of fun, but you don't really see anything that's on par with Jaws. So, speaking of uh, franchises or films that we'll never see, originally the sequel to the movie Jaws was going to be a prequel. Okay. Now, it was going to have an entire film dedicated to arguably the best scene in the film Jaws. and Which that is didn't the, involve the shark at all. Right. It's just people drama. Pure dialogue. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like to take credit for writing that scene. But Robert Shaw deserves a lot of the credit, who was a playwright and who was in and out of being inebriated throughout the filming of that film. But... This scene involves him telling the story of how he was on the USS Indianapolis that was delivering a bomb that essentially uh, was a big part of ending, ending World War II. They delivered the bomb, but the ship, they were sinking, and he talked about the horrors of that evening as those who did survive waiting to be rescued were being picked off one by one by these sharks. And the way he describes the sharks is so eerie. And it's funny because the scene starts out as this funny scene of them telling, like uh, showing off their scars and singing drunken songs. And then it takes a really dark turn. Um, so there was going to be a film dedicated to this. It never materialized, however, which is a shame. So in this alternate universe that we're creating... Christopher Nolan would be the perfect director for this film. And actually, it almost doesn't even need to be made because this film would almost look identical to the film he just made, Dunkirk. You have this World War II action drama that is very intense from start to finish. There's a a very uh, 
very driving soundtrack where they ha- he records the sound of his really expensive watch that's on the soundtrack. <laughs> right. And it's just a really intense film. And again, it has a lot to do with this less is more. Like you don't you don't really see any blood or guts or people, you know, getting shot, things like that. It all has to do with sound and setup and it it really pays off. So I in a way I'm okay that they didn't make this movie because I feel like I saw it when I watched Dunkirk. Now, the person that was hired to direct Jaws was Rob Reiner, circa 1986. Because he gave us three great films in that time period from 1986 to 1990, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, and Misery, two of which are Stephen King adaptations. Hmm. So, um, interestingly enough, by the way, Misery of those three films had the biggest budget, and it all takes place in a cabin, basically. They, with they two could characters have built in it. the cabin, I right. guess. Yeah. That was the most expensive film. So, Rob Reiner in those films was very good. He's he proves that he could do action adventure with The Princess Bride on a small budget of a film that everybody said nobody could ever film make a film version of The Princess Bride the book. And he did it and now it's one of the greatest films ever made in my opinion. Okay? But he also gave us Stand by Me and Misery, two films that are very character-driven, especially Stand By Me, and very suspenseful. I think he could pull it off. Rob Reiner today, mm, not so much. But Rob Reiner in his prime could have done a great job with the Jaws film. And uh, I really wish I could have seen one of those. So, Cole, what I want to do now is just take a quick break. And uh, when we return, we are going to share with you our last three picks for franchises we'd love to see switch hands here on Screenplay. It was a thing called a zing, and I wanted to sing and listen to the ballads of the man named Sting. Lady looks in your eyes and it's suddenly spring, like when Nala looked at Simba and the Lion King. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Today we're talking franchises we'd love to see switch hands. We've already mentioned Jurassic Park and Jaws. Now we're going to switch things up a little bit because we could spend all this time on all these action franchises that are out right now that we'd love to see switch hands. But we're not going to do that just yet. We're going to take a little break from that by giving you an animated franchise that we'd love to see switch hands. Now, to be honest with you, this next one, I would actually prefer it just went away completely. (laughs) Um, But if if the box office returns are any indicator that's probably not going to happen, like Despicable Me. Uh, But this is the Hotel Transylvania franchise. The first one had a really clever idea. It wasn't a great film by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But it was certainly better than parts two and three, which uh, just came out recently. I just want to do a complete reboot of this franchise and I'm going to mention who did not get the job or who had the job, but the film ended up going to somebody else. So originally, Phil Lord and Chris Miller were attached to direct, and they had already started directing it, but they left mid-production 
uh, because they had creative differences. Sounds familiar. Yes. <laughs> now, we want to remind our listeners that this is – we're creating an alternate universe here. So when we say such and such a director was hired to do the film – we're not telling the truth. This isn't like insider information that we have or based on an article that we read. These are our preferences, but we're presenting them as if it's actually happening. Our own twilight zone that we step back and enter a different universe. Not to confuse you, but it will probably confuse you. So Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the people behind the Lego movie, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the 21 and 22 Jump Street movies, and originally... Half of Solo. Solo. They left the project over creative differences. So a a very unconventional pick for this sort of franchise was brought in by the name of Wes Anderson. Now, this is not a film that Wes Anderson was interested in directing. However, the folks at Fox Searchlights, who for some reason in this alternate universe have a say in who's directing Hotel Transylvania, a which Sony is movie. a Sony movie, they said that if if they were going to fund another one of his independent movies, he had to do more of a popcorn uh, box office smash movie. Had to make some money. Right. So Hotel Transylvania Part 4 is going to Wes Anderson. Now... If you're going if Wes Anderson is going to make a film like this, he's going to make it his way and I don't think anybody else wants to see a Wes Anderson movie that's not a Wes Anderson movie, if that makes sense. So we're going to recast this film in the role of Drac. We'll no longer be seeing Adam Sandler or hearing Adam Sandler. We will be hearing and this is interesting because both in the Phil Lord and Chris Miller movie and the Wes Anderson movie, I had the same person in mind. Jeff Goldblum as Drac. Okay. We've got Jason Schwartzman as Johnny, his son-in-law. We've got Scarlett Johansson as Mavis, his daughter. Bob Balaban as Frankenstein's monster. Now, if you don't know who Bob Balaban is, he's always like this turtle. uh, He's got the turtle glasses, very soft, squirrely kind of voice Um, in a lot of – in quite a few Wes Anderson movies – Bill Murray as the invisible guy, currently being played by David Spade. Uh, we're going to keep Steve Buscemi as the werewolf. He's doing a great job, and he it seems like he belongs in the Wes Anderson universe, don't you think? I think so. Okay. And then Olivia Williams as the narrator. A lot of people, because there's always a narrator in a Wes Anderson film, a lot of people probably don't know who Olivia Williams is. Uh, she was in one of the first Wes Anderson films, Rushmore. She was the love interest. She was involved in this love triangle between Jason Schwartzman and uh, Bill Murray. And she was also the wife of Bruce Willis in the movie The Sixth Sense. So just to give you some perspective. So that is what Hotel Transylvania Part 4 would look like. And I would gladly pay money to see that. I would crowdfund the heck out of that movie. I would love to see Hotel Transylvania in the hands of Wes Anderson. Very, very interesting pick, Jeffrey. I thought being the Tim Burton fan that you are, though, that you would be going in more of that general area because this is a creepy, cute animation thing. Henry Selleck, who directed Nightmare Before Christmas and the wonderful Coraline, almost got the the job. Right. He almost got the job. I almost went that way. So if you want to do different kind of animation as well, that's another option that I considered. But in the end... 
I was realistic again with my choice, picking a man that has animation credits behind him. Now, we're bringing Hotel Transylvania up a little bit because it's still in theaters. It's still relevant. But also there's news that Genny Tetsakovsky, mm-hmm. who is the director, has done so well with this now billion with a B dollar franchise. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That Sony is giving him two more projects to work on. So Please no more Hotel now, Transylvania. Please tell it me might, it's not. They've announced two additional movies that he'll be doing. Ugh. Neither of our are Hotel Transylvania 4. But in this now new universe where he has to step away and do his side projects, we need a new man to come and give give new life to this franchise. Absolutely. And mine is Rich Moore. Rich Moore. Who has Disney credits behind him, which okay. is always useful in this animation business. Mm-hmm. He is the man behind part of Zootopia, but also Wreck-It Ralph. Did he direct it? He was the director of Wreck-It Ralph, oh. which takes your villain and kind of makes him into a hero in a Disney kind of way. And that's what Hotel Transylvania has always tried to do. And the first one did it at least better than the other two. The other interesting thing that Rich Moore has in his credits is The Simpsons, but not just any direction on The Simpsons. He was one-third of the very first Treehouse of Horror episode back in season two. And so he knows what horror, animation, and serious, and also funny and goofy and Disney all look like. He can bring all of that background to Hotel Transylvania 4. Interesting. See, Cole, your picks are very realistic. Like, these are people that could actually get the job uh, and get the job done, I might add. And we will see later this year just how Rich Moore's second um, Record Ralph 2 goes and if he'll be maybe busy with that franchise. And stuff. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go out on a limb and say of all of the picks that I've made, this one is probably the most realistic. But I want to hear what you have to say first about Star Wars. Okay. Now, I want to first go on the record and say I did. I almost didn't want to do this one because I'm actually very pleased with the direction that the Star Wars films are heading. Uh, I'm, I side more with the critics in those regards than the fans. But who did you choose for the next Star Wars film? So we're looking for Star Wars 9, and I went a slightly different route with this one because I think we need to. Okay. So we have to step back and look at why we're trying to redirect and and take a different direction with the Star Wars universe. It's because they're a bit of a mess right now from a reception-wise. Their most recent movie actually lost money despite making a decent amount here domestically. You're talking about Solo. Solo, a Star Wars story. And the one right before that was very panned by the fans, not so much by the critics who nowadays just can get into fun, goofy action movies. But the fans weren't a big fan of The Last Jedi. And I've come a little bit more around on that movie in that I don't blame Ryan Johnson as much as I used to. I look at the failure of The Last Jedi at about 60% Ryan Johnson's fault, 40% J.J. Abrams' fault for building up and setting up all of these questions. But 60% is still the lion's share of the blame. It, it, because he made a bad movie. But but there's, there's blame to be put on J.J. Abrams for setting up so many things that Ryan Johnson just didn't care about. When mm. you look at the failure of Solo, it's a little bit to do with the fact that Last Jedi was bad. It's a little bit due to the fact that within a two-month window, Disney was releasing three massive franchises back to back to back and didn't give them time to breathe either. 
Hmm. And it's a little bit due to the fact that they canned their directors halfway through to bring in a whole new guy that had a whole different direction. One of the reasons it lost money, even though it made a decent amount, is because it became so expensive when Ron Howard had to bring everyone back for reshoots. And so we need in the Star Wars room in Disney a new leader. Not so much a director for the next movie, but I need a Kevin Feige to be at Lucasfilm. And now that Kevin Feige is wearing down with his turn on Marvel, maybe he steps over. Now, not to direct, though, but to oversee, To be the new overseer. Okay. The difference right now between Star Wars and Marvel is that Marvel knows from the get-go what they're doing and what their directors have to include. Sometimes that causes friction with directors and they'll leave, but... Marvel knows what those directors have to include. Star Wars has no idea. They needed someone to stand up to J.J. Abrams and say, no one cares about Snoke, or Ray's parents are just going to be no one, don't build it up so much. That way, when Ryan Johnson comes in and does those things, it's not as disappointing to the fans. They need someone to stand up to Disney and say, we're not releasing Solo two weeks after Avengers. We're going to stick it in October when there's no other big blockbusters happening. Great pick, Cole. This one has a lot of directors that either passed on the job or were fired or just didn't ultimately direct this film. Other choices, you mentioned one of them already, and that's Kenneth Branagh. I thought, this is a man that could do a decent job with Star Wars because I think he would focus more on what the original trilogy focused on. This this big – it's the the relationships and the characters were more epic than the action sequences were. It was almost like a space opera. So who better to direct that than Kenneth Branagh, right? Who is who's done a lot of Shakespeare in his career. So uh, a runner-up director was going to be the guy on Twitter that said that he had two hundred million dollars secured to make this film, but it turns out. Uh, He didn't have the funding. The funding fell through, so he didn't get the job. So my ultimate pick is somebody that has done two trilogies, and he is involved with the production of basically, I wouldn't call it a spinoff of one of his trilogies, but it's a different iteration of his trilogy. We know that he can do epic characters and epic scenes and epic relationships. As I said, he's a proven action director, and we know that he can be convinced or persuaded to be on board with something. This is somebody who did not want to come back to do the second set of movies, but in the end, he was convinced, and it was a mistake, in my opinion. And now I know who you're talking about. I'm talking about, of course, Peter Jackson. Uh-huh. I am so excited about this because the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy that he did, is one of arguably one of the greatest trilogies ever made. Not even one of. Could be arguably the greatest trilogy ever made. All solid. They all feel like it's one big long movie. There's not one that feels like it's so much better than the other. And he just nailed it. I could really see him doing justice to a Star Wars film. Again, kind of like a Kenneth Branagh. He's very good at kind of like these operatic or Shakespearean scenes that I could see belonging in a Star Wars universe that are much more in line with what the original Star Wars trilogy looked like. But I honestly feel like whoever fills this position next is going to be hated 
by a large percentage of the people, no matter how good the film is. It's the fate of Star Wars, really. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, just, but it is. It there is. needs to be strong creative control. They want to make this sprawling universe with different stories ancillary to their main plot. And so they need the creative control. And that's what Peter Jackson had. Like you said, that trilogy felt really cohesive. You didn't really feel like there needed to be a break between any specific one of the movies. Mm-hmm. And if he can bring that overarching plan to Star Wars, that's what I want more than just one particularly good movie. That's a valid. That's a valid point. Um, One thing that I will mention is I feel like the original Star Wars trilogy is kind of placed on this pedestal that no matter what, whatever came after it, people were going to hate it, love it, be all over the place with it. And I honestly feel like that is the fate of Star Wars. But anyway, I'll let you share your honorable mention first, Cole. So I... I fought with Jeff a little bit to get this one included, but eventually I just realized that I was passionate enough about it that okay. I could talk about it. I want to talk about Superman for a second mm. because we had one good Superman movie and then a lot of bad sequels. You know, Jaws, one good movie, bad sequels. Jurassic Park, one good movie, bad sequels. Hotel Transylvania, one okay movie and then even worse <laughs> sequels. So Superman fits what we're looking for in that vein, but it also does have an interesting story about directors coming and going. Of course, we're very familiar with Dawn of Justice having Zack Snyder originally for it, um, and then due to uh, tragic circumstances, having to bring in Joss Whedon, and Joss brought his own style when he came in to finish it. But Superman specifically, even in his own movies from the 70s and 80s, has this story as well, because Richard Donner was that original director for the first one. He was shooting the first and second one simultaneously, but he was going so over budget with it all that they canned him for the second one and brought in Richard Lester to finish shooting. Um, Gene Hackman, for example, uh, was so furious and such a Donner supporter that he did not come back to do any reshoots. Anything with Gene Hackman in the second movie was shot by Donner. But yeah, Superman's already a franchise that has been through so many iterations and so many just bad sequels that we need someone that is passionate about the character and, and knows who Superman is. Whenever it got rebooted to Zack Snyder... It fell into the hands of a man that doesn't really understand what Superman can be. The truth, justice, and the American way goodness of this guy fell by the wayside as he tried to copy Chris Nolan's dark DC kind of tone. Sure. And it didn't fit the hero that he was building a story for. Well, do you think Chris Nolan had an influence on him because he was a producer on... um... Man of Steel? That's possible. It's possible that even the more upstairs people, I talked about producers a little bit with Star Wars, it's possible even those big wigs at DC said, Dark Knight worked really well, let's do that with Superman, and it didn't work because that's not who Superman is. So I want a director that knows who he is, and it is the man that was behind his own little DC animated universe in the 90s and 2000s, that is Bruce Timm. He he was the creative director in charge of the Adventures of Superman cartoon, but also the Batman the Animated Series cartoon. You really did. And Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. These are series that I love, but that treat Superman well. We know that Brad Bird went from animation to live action with the fourth Mission Impossible, and I believe in the action capabilities that Bruce Tim has shown in his animation to bring it to the live action screen. I'm glad this is an honorable mention just because I don't I don't really care at all about Superman. I love Superman. I don't think 
I it's think, because he hasn't had a good movie yet. I think the most enjoyable Superman movie I've seen is one that people would yell at me for liking, which was Superman Returns. Yeah, the Brandon Routh one. I was okay with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's harder for me to get behind people that aren't as vulnerable, which is why I like Batman and Iron Man so much is because they're vulnerable. They're human. They're... They're not perfect. They have weaknesses. Whereas Superman, you have these 20-minute fight scenes where nobody ever dies and they just go on and on and on. And I just don't care about that as much. But I really do like your pick for that. I could get behind that. My honorable mention is for a franchise that I I don't care for at this point. I loved the first film, revisited every once in a while, but I don't know that I've seen the second and third or fourth and fifth ones. Um. I've seen the second and third, but not the fourth and fifth. And that is the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. One director I would be really intrigued to see uh, be at the helm of the next film, which I believe there is going to be a Pirates 6. Probably. And this is a man that is no stranger to franchises. This is another man who has his roots in horror and knows a lot about over the top and... Just creating really freaky, hideous characters, which I think Johnny could... Depp qualifies for with well, Captain Jack. Not just him, but like the creatures in that universe, you oh, know, yeah. like with the the dead rising and the skeletons and all these, you know, the the kraken and all that. Sam Raimi, who directed <laughs> not only uh, the Spider Man trilogy, but uh, started out with films like Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two, Army of Darkness. And a personal favorite of mine dragged me to H-E Double Hockey Sticks, which is PG-13, so I feel like we can talk about it here on BYU Radio. But I would love to see what Sam Raimi could do with the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. He's not really doing much these days. He did Oz the Great and Powerful, which I didn't really care for. But uh, but I, that when I was watching that movie with my aunt, she looked at James Franco and said, this would be so much better if that was Johnny Depp. And so as as he was directing that Mm. Oz the Great and Powerful, my family was thinking this would be better as a Pirates movie. That's my favorite pick of yours, Jeffrey. I like that. Really? Yeah. Okay. well, let's see what you think of this pick, because of all the films that I've chosen, I've I've gone back and forth between all these directors. People were hired and fired and left the project over creative differences, things like that. This is the only film that had one director in mind and they got him. And the franchise is going to be even better because of it. Now, I need to justify this by saying I've actually only seen one of these eight films. One and a half. I think you've explained it to me right. before. I've seen the Fast or Fast and the Furious or The Fast and the Furious. The first one. The first one. And I've seen about half of Fast Five. That's it. But what would really sell the ticket to me for the next film would be if they went even even way more over the top with the action than they currently are doing. And I, from the trailers that I've seen, it's way over the top. The Rock has thrown a missile right. in this series. I'm talking like out of your mind, Bonkersville. How on earth could this could a human being even imagine what I'm seeing on screen right now or cook up in their minds what I'm seeing? And that is George Miller, who directed the entire Mad Max franchise. Also, my favorite uh, sequence from the anthology film, the Twilight Zone movie, 
Terror at 20,000 feet. He did one or bo- I think he one or both of the Happy Feet movies. He did one of the Babe movies, which are really kind of going in the opposite direction. Yeah, had me with trying. Mad Max. Let's go back to that. But one. Mad Max. <laughs> It's, again, arguably one of the greatest action franchises ever made. Especially with cars. I would love to see the Fast and the Furious get the Mad Max treatment. And that's why George Miller got the job for the next film. All right. So this got onto the list just the way that Star Wars did, even though... You think that all the Star Warses are good, and I think they've been falling off. Oh, I oh, think oh, all I the Fast and Furiouses are good. I don't think, think all the Star Wars films off. are good. I would like to forget about the the prequels, but everything else I'm I'm okay with. Right. Yeah. But Fast and Furious, in the same way to me, is not a franchise that has been going downhill the way some of these other ones that we've brought up have. Okay. But I think one director that could bring something new to the franchise. Um, a franchise that started off with some CGI stuff going on, but has in more recent years taken a better <laughs> attention to their practical effects and really? getting the actual cars. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought so, there was more CGI. No, no, no. Yeah, there's more practical effects, especially right around Fast Five when they started getting good. There were real cars doing, I mean, not doing actually these things, but it was real cars kind of stuff. Okay. And they're shot well. And one man that I know is passionate enough about stunts and practical effects and and the way that that action looks on the screen and is getting a little older is a man by the name of Tom Cruise. To direct. To direct. In his and, directorial debut. Wow. Okay. Fast and Furious 9 mm. by Tom Cruise. Because by the time he gets signed on, he will be 60 years old shooting this. He needs to start transitioning in this part of his career from being the actor doing it to the man imparting all of this amazing knowledge that he has and passion for film to another generation of young actors. And he can do no better than with all of the action people that are involved in the Fast and Furious franchise. This is also a franchise that has some inner conflict among the actors. Maybe some of them don't like others. I think Tom Cruise's craziness can just add to the dynamics of that room really interestingly, at least. And I know that as a 60-year-old man, I don't maybe want to see as much of him doing the stunts, but he is the greatest actor of our of a few generations, and I want to see him start to pass that on. In terms of action movies or just in general? In terms of everything. Tom okay. Cruise is the biggest star to hit movies in the past 40 years, and he's been the biggest star for 40 years, and I want him to start passing this on so that we can continue to have great movies in the future. So there you have it, franchises. We'd love to see switch hands. And, you know, franchises are not going to end, at least not anytime soon. So if they don't, at least hopefully going forward, they can make better choices about who is going to direct the film or who's going to write the film. And even if they don't, at least we have our imaginations, right? Sometimes what we imagine up in our minds is better than what we actually see on screen. And at the very least... If we can't even have that, then we can just revisit the original films that made us love, fall in love with these franchises in the first place. That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. BYU Sports Nation is up next here on BYU Radio.